Hello, everybody. This is Mark Vines. Welcome to the Mark Vines Show. And once again, this is your one-stop shop for everything freedom, the Constitution, the American way, and frankly, I think just the way you ought to live your life. And today, I want to bring to you a guest, uh, James Gagliano, who's a retired FBI agent. And James and I never worked together uh, while I was in the FBI. I I knew the name, um, and as you get to know him, uh, you know, I think he's he was well well known in the FBI at the time. And you know, so between my time and my field office headquarters, the academy, the name was familiar to me. But really, where uh, James came to my attention was after we were both retired and. Um, he started getting into media writing. Um, he's run for office, and I'm sure he'll talk to you about that. But uh, where he really came to my attention was some articles that he had written uh, about the FBI, uh, direction of the FBI, and um, some of the issues, and more importantly, some of the things that we could do to uh, improve the organization that we all know, love, and need. And uh, that that's where he came to uh, my attention. Now, it was a number of months ago when I first reached out to James and, and wanted to have an interview. But as you're going to hear, he's an extremely busy guy, as we all are. And, um, you know, so we're going to get to those topics. But obviously, the world has changed. And if you've been listening to the Mark Vine Show podcast uh, the last couple of weeks, we've covered, obviously, what's been going on in the Ukraine. And, um, you know, for those of you that think, well, wait a minute, what does that have to do with us? I think it has a lot to do with us. And, of course, the president uh, had his first State of the Union speech last night. We are going to have a lot of episodes breaking that that speech down. But there's a lot going on, and um, I, I personally, as I've expressed on this show before, uh, I think that we're going to be getting involved at, at some point. I'm not saying I think that we should. I'm saying I think we are. But having said that, a lot of moving parts uh, lots of lots of news to, to cover here, but uh, I wanted to get James's uh, take on what the world events right now, what's going on, how it's affecting him and his neck of the woods up where he lives, and then we'll we'll get in and talk about the bureau a little bit. So with that, uh, here's our guest, James Gagliano. Thanks for coming on the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, it's uh, you and I had been talking about trying to do this for a while and just and, and trying to deconflict our schedules, which is which is always a always a tough thing for guys that uh, retired. And then ironically enough, we look, we look at it and we go, we retired to get more jobs and to do more things. And it's, I used to laugh when, when old timers that had left the bureau told me, Hey kid, I'm retired and I've never been busier. And I'd be like, come on. (laughs) That's absolutely true. I work harder now than I ever did. (laughs) No doubt about it, but um, no, I'm, uh, I'm enjoying it. And actually it kind of brings me back to the, to the, to the, current topic that, that you're talking about right now with what's going on in Ukraine. It's, it, it's funny. I left the bureau, um, as we were just discussing before we started taping, I, I, I left the bureau, um, in early 2016. And my goal, my only goal was to teach and, and, and how it got me into these different areas of politics and obviously doing law enforcement analysis and in, in print media and, 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 and on air. Um, I never suspected it, but, uh, yeah, I went to teach and, I was so enamored with, you know, some of the instructors and professors I had when I was a West Point cadet back in the mid 80s. And the only reason I bring that up um, is because it was at the height of the Cold War. And I remember in, in 85 and 86 and our professors at the military academy where, you know, the, the, the Cold War was looming and, and we had to prepare. How are we going to stop the, the Soviets at the full the gap? And, you know, we didn't have as many nukes and we didn't have as many tanks and we didn't have as many planes. And, you know, how are we going to save the free world? I took two years of Russian. Now, I can basically say hello, goodbye and, and, and say my name. And that's about it. But um, I took two years of Russian, and I remember years later, you know, 1991, the Soviet Empire collapses. You know, democratization happens, and and we move into this, we move into this, uh, you know, this this different new world order, if you will, um, thanks to to Gorbachev, and and thanks to some brave people in the Soviet Union that were clamoring for freedom. And then, gosh, things come full circle, and here we are now with a former KGB officer in Putin, who looks like. I mean, beginning back, you know, in 2014, which was, you know, eight years ago when he basically annexed the Crimean, Crimean Peninsula, 
this all just seems to be the direction he's going in, in trying to bring things back to what to what existed back in the 1980s at the height of the Cold War. So, yeah, terrible scenes that we're seeing in Ukraine. I agree with you. Something more than just giving them blankets and 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 you know uh, sea rations. Um, I have a feeling that lethal aid is going to have to be delivered in some way to the to the, to the Ukrainians, whether it's arms, weapons. Um, you know, advisors or something like that. You don't want to get caught in a quagmire, but man, um, this is a place I think that the entire West needs to make a stand. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting that you were saying this. Um, obviously there were some interesting things that were said during the state of the union address last night. And, you know, reflecting back on a few weeks ago, the president said, that uh, under no circumstances are we going to get involved uh, as far as troops are concerned, boots on the ground. That's what he said a few weeks ago. However, um, you know, being an inter- interview and interrogator myself and, and, and as you are, there were things that, that I listened to and I think, hmm, okay, well, that's a red flag right there. Uh, a couple of the things that stand out uh, are, one, talking about uh, implementing a, a no-fly zone. That's number one. And uh, I can tell you that if you implement a no-fly zone, then you have to enforce that. And if you enforce that, that means you're shooting down aircraft and, and possibly radar sites. And if you do that, then by definition, by definition, you're in engaged uh, in a war. That was red flag number one. Uh, The other red flag was uh, this morning, Jen Psaki, the president's press secretary, made the statement that if they determine that uh, Putin indiscriminately targets civilians, then that's going to trigger Article 5. Well, according to news reports, I'm saying they've already done that. And if that's the case, then we could find ourselves in uh, a conflict, i.e., meaning U.S. troops on the ground going in. I mean, is that far-fetched? Do you think to to come to that conclusion no. on my part? No, I'll, I'll put my uh, you know I'll put my military historian hat on. Um, no, um, I I don't think that that's far-fetched. Now now look, we all understand even with the precision of, uh, of modern armaments and modern weaponry and, and the way that warfare works now, it's much more of an asymmetrical battle. Um, it's not the linear type of, uh, warfare that, you know, we were used to, you know, probably through, through world war two and even be, and even beyond. Um, I just think that, and, and I'm not going to say anything profound here because everyone's just going to scratch your head and go, uh, duh, we know that. Um, collateral damage is a part of warfare. Even the United States, as honorable as our intentions are, and when we try to take terrorists off the battlefield in the Middle East, um, you know, uh, th- there is collateral damage. And I don't mean to use that term um, in-, in a manner that means that 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 uh, I'm-, I'm showing no empathy or that I'm trying to I'm trying to describe human beings as just you know you know something collateral, but it does happen. Now, mm-hmm. if it can be proved that the Russians are targeting a school or targeting an apartment complex or targeting, you know, whatever. But you know how you know how propaganda works. And, and I'm not suggesting that's what's going on in Ukraine. I'm, I'm seeing the same images that you're seeing as well. But, um, you know, it, it, it's all how these things are framed. And, and you know, I, the Russians are in a losing battle right now from from a lot of perspectives. But but the public relations battle, which is what which is what Putin needs to sustain his ego um, and the propaganda battle that he's going to be fighting to make sure that he tells the story the way that he wants to, which we all know it will not be the truth. That's going to be a big piece of this. And, yes, I can see this at a, at a, at a place where we are going to see other nations, you know, beyond the EU um, and maybe beyond us helping out in regard to armaments and and possibly even deployments of troops. I could see that happening. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we need to be ready for. We really do need to be ready for that. And that then leads me into our preparedness. Um, and then I'll eventually segue into our original topic, which is the Bureau. But uh, I was a Navy guy. I was a naval aviator. You were an Army guy. And, um, you know, I know we've both been out of the military for a while, but we're still in those communities and close contact those communities. Um, I, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, are, are we ready for this kind of – I mean, we just got out of <laughs> – 
20 years in Iraq and in Afghanistan. And I think there's some weariness. Oh, I know there's a lot of weariness there. And, um, and our leadership has changed quite a bit. Uh, maybe elaborate on that a little bit. Where, where do you stand on that? What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I, I saw the United States come light years in a few short years, um, you know, uh, at the beginning of the global war on terror. And, and look, I, I had a small footprint there and I was there for a couple of short tours, you know, attached as a as a former member of the FBI sausage rescue team with JSOC units, you know, Joint Special Operations Command units over in the sandbox. And, uh, and I'm not saying that to, to, to pump up my resume. I'm, I'm suggesting that because um, our level of preparedness, you know, uh, at that point in time, you know, you're talking right after 9-11, um, America hadn't been in, at war in a while. Yes, we had Grenada, Just Cause, we had Panama, but these were tiny, little, tiny military operations, surgical operations. But, I mean, having been at a, at a you know, full-scale land war, uh, the, the last experience we had was, you know, at the end of v- Vietnam, which was 1975. So we had a lot of catching up to do. We have 20 years of serious combat experience now. And and we know that, as I pointed out at the top of this, you know, as we move into asymmetrical warfare, where it's not just, you know, the, the British redcoats on one side and the American colonials on the other, and they line up and they shoot and then, you know, and then they reload and then they shoot again. Asymmetrical warfare, we're, we're taking out bad guys and we're taking out the enemy, you know, all across the map. And it's just, it's it, there are no like clear lines of, of delineation between troops. We have evolved, we have learned, we have gotten better. Our equipment has gotten better. Our gear has gotten better. Our war fighters have gotten better. So, yeah, I would suggest that right now that we could not be any better prepared. Now, am I suggesting that the Ukraine is the same as battling the mountains of Afghanistan or, or you know, uh, uh, or in Fallujah in Iraq? No, a little bit different terrain, some similarities, but I think that we are much better prepared. Um, I do believe that the former president, um, the 45th Donald Trump, did do a great job of, of rebuilding our military, which it, which I don't want to say it had, it had fallen into disarray, but there had been some degradation of it. What I worry about now, and I know you're going to want to talk about the FBI with this shortly, but I worry about now is the, the military being so keen up on pronouns and and keyed up on things like teaching critical race theory and and listening to to, you know, the the uh, the secretary of defense, General Lloyd Austin and listening to General uh, Milley, you know, in front of Congress. And it and it did disturb me to to hear what they think the priorities right now our priorities as a military should be fighting and winning the wars um that we are engaged in that should be it um and so when we go this route where i believe in respecting differences i believe in everybody being a you know uh, a person that is valued and and should be able to live their life within within reason when you're in the military because you have to you're a, you're a homogenous fighting force but live their life as they want to without fear of reprisal or or repression i agree with that but the focus right now to me seems so much of a distraction to the real focus which is we have got to be able to be prepared to fight and win there is no second place in these things and if we're not capable of doing that Mark, that's what concerns me going forward. Yeah, and very, very well said. Very, very well said. And I agree with you 100%. And and I have to be honest. It is not our uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Coast Guards. Uh, and that's not who I'm not. I'm worried about. I, I know our troops are, are ready. I know our troops can fight. It's our leadership that I'm worried about right now. Because I, with you, I just, I look, you know, having been a naval officer myself, in a pilot, I, I look at some of the things that are being said by the military leaders, and I think, where the hell have your priorities gone? Really? That that's your yeah. priority, uh, you know. Pronouns, critical race theory, um, having um, u- uniforms, you know, talking about body armor and and uniforms for for pregnant women. Um, first of all, I I would question whether the wisdom behind putting a woman who was pregnant in combat in the first place where you would need the body armor. I guess that's another issue for another day. But I mean, but those are the things that, you know, as the world is starting to unravel now, that's where we have been spending time. And it really bothers me a great deal. And I, and just watching the state of the union address last night didn't make me feel any, any 
more comfortable. I mean, what were your takeaways from the the speech last night? You know, I um, you know, I, I mean, you pointed it out at the top when you said uh, while you were an FBI agent for mm-hmm. for all the your same thing with me. We kept our opinions essentially to ourselves, unless we were talking in closed circles with close yeah. friends. Mm-hmm. But I don't know about you. We never had a chance to 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 serve together in the same office or the same division, but I'm pretty certain it's the same way. I cannot remember having political conversations at work. I came to work Mm -hmm. and yep, we talked sports in the bullpen and then boom, we jumped up and our goal was how do we find the bad guys? How do we, we, we gather the evidence that is going to be able to take them off the street and, and make our neighborhood safer. That's the way every FBI agent, male, female, black, green, purple, white, whatever. That's the way my experience was across 25 years with folks. Um, you know, a, a, a lot of that I think is changing and I think some of it is real and some of it is perception. Um, and, and I know we can talk about, you know, how that's happening right now in the military and also how that's happening in the FBI where, you know, do I think James Comey was an awful person who was, you know, trying to destroy the FBI and make it political? No, but I do believe he was a flawed individual, as we all are, and a particularly flawed leader that made some colossal mistakes that took an agency that for as long as I know, at least during my time, and and, and I served under four of the eight um, Senate-confirmed FBI directors in the Bureau's 100-plus-year history, um, My understanding always was the FBI was enjoying a 95, 96, 98 percent approval rating or favorability rating with the American public. And look, no one is going to pretend the FBI is perfect. And our history is certainly not perfect either. There was COINTELPRO. There were things that that were done that were illegal. And there were leaders at the top, including Hoover, who, you know, was our was that was the founder of, of the modern FBI and served at its helm for 48 years, made mistakes, did things as as imperfect human beings. There's no doubt about that. But I think that one of the recent polls I saw, when I say recent within the last couple of years, the American public looked at, viewed the FBI with a favorability, unfavorability rating of 50-50. And, and, and Mark, that breaks my heart. That says that yeah. one of us don't trust today's FBI. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that is, again, very, very well said. And I, I agree with you 100%. And I was the, you know, what, what's funny is and I, I we can get your opinion on Robert Mueller. I have my own opinions of of Robert Mueller, um, but I'll just focus on on one thing. I, I do know that he was not a an easy man to work for, and when James Comey became the director of the FBI, it was a breath of fresh air. And I'm speaking for myself, and I'm speaking for where I was, my perspective of the FBI and the people I was around. And, you know, he came in, um, whether you liked him, didn't like him, when I, his personality was very, very different than Bob Mueller's. And it was, again, a, a breath of fresh air. And and he seemed to be a people person uh, at headquarters. Uh, you know, so I was, at that time, headquarters and then down at the academy, which he spent a lot of time at, a lot of time coming down to the academy. And he just just brightened the place up, even painted the walls at headquarters, put a Starbucks in, in the headquarters, you know, just made it a nice place to, to live. And he came across as somebody that really cared. He was a, a people person. But then over time, I started seeing things and hearing things from him that began to bother me. And that's when I, I started having my doubts. And um, it, we became much more political, as, as you mentioned, in the office, because it was the same way where I was. We, we never talked politics in the office. It was forbidden. But that started to just change with a lot of people once Comey became director. And I, I have my own stories to tell, and, and I may share some of those here uh, momentarily. But um, I wanted to get from you, from your perspective, because we were in different offices, different places. Um, a, do you agree with what I'm saying, that personality change from, from Mueller to, to Comey? And did you see that, did did you start noticing things and, and maybe uh, discuss that? Because you talked about um, him making some colossal mistakes. So maybe, maybe let's, for our listeners, maybe discuss what some of those were, other than the obvious, other than what we know with Russia collusion and, and all the other things. But I mean, some of the, the less obvious things to the, the public. 
Sure, absolutely. Um, I think my initial take was the same as yours um, in regards to, to Director Comey when he came in. Um, and I think part of it was, I, I, I can't say, suggest that I knew any of the four directors that I served under. I came in under William Sessions, Judge Sessions, then obviously Director Lewis Free uh, was a New York icon, you know, had been a judge and a prosecutor and worked with the FBI in New York. So, I uh, spent some time as a member of the hostage rescue team working on his protection detail when he traveled overseas. I don't want to pretend to say that I know him, know him, but you get to know a lot about a man when you're when you're traveling in a tight circle and you're and you're going into some 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 tough places. And then next, um, um, Director Mueller and Director Mueller was um, I, I agree with your take. I mean, stern, taciturn, didn't have the affability of of a Louis Free or even of a James Comey, didn't suffer fools well. Um, but the guy was a, a, a decorated combat veteran and, 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 and Marine from Vietnam, um, a, a hell of a prosecutor. And, and, and I thought he represented the FBI well, where I thought he made some mistakes. And I know we're moving into the Comey regime was when they decided to revamp the, the promotion program yeah. in the FBI. And I know we could spend three hours lamenting that. Um, and I understand the pros and the cons, and I've heard it debated by a number of different people um, who all have valid opinions on this, whether they're in the FBI or not. But I think that that had a deleterious effect. And why is that? Because they struggled to attract really good agents um, to come to D.C. to lead the casework that they were doing or the supervisory work that they were doing. Um, they struggled to do that. So they offered all these incentives, which in a sense allowed younger agents, you know, with a year or so in the field and a year or so in the bureau to go down for an 18 month TDY, check the box, become a boss and then come back and take a desk. And for, for the uninitiated, a desk is a, is a, what they say a bureau supervisor has. They sit at the desk and they, they manage, they oversee, they, they lead the investigators under their charge. I think that irreparably damaged the Bureau. I think Comey had an opportunity to change that, to get rid of it, didn't do it, which for me was the first strike. I, I, I felt like he didn't have the courage to, with all the pushback he'd gotten and limited successes, and he allowed that program to continue to proliferate. And then he surrounded himself with the Josh Campbells, who's now at CNN, and the Andy McCabe's. And I know Andy because Andy was on the SWAT team in New York when I was the senior team team leader there. And the people that that he had and that that I believe were were callow and inexperienced and guilty of what I've spoken about on TV many times before: confirmation bias, where everybody wants to appease the boss. You don't have the level of expertise and experience and courage. I'm not suggesting these people are, 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 are cowards or, 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 or not courageous, but sometimes when a boss has something in his mind, um, it takes a certain type of courage to push back and say, no, sir, that is not going to work. Or no, ma'am, I would not do that that way and push back on it um, to the point where you, if you're that uncomfortable, you say, I'm going to step away from this position. And I think, unfortunately, once you get to headquarters, not everybody, because I know some damn good bosses that came out of there, but a lot of them become careerists, or as we used to say, derisively blue flamers, and were so focused on getting to the next job, they hardly had a chance to learn the job or learn the names of the people on the, under their charge or where the bathrooms or coffee machines were before they were getting promoted to the next position. That's where I think Comey made a colossal mistake and it came back to bite him in the butt during the Hillary Clinton uh, investigation as well as uh, the Russia collusion investigation because he didn't have people I felt that were seasoned enough not just in understanding counterintelligence or understanding security of email secure uh, servers but actually the ability to push back on a boss with different ideas or um, push back on on a decision that had already been made um, when it was offered. And again, that logical fallacy of uh, that circular the uh, uh, logic of confirmation bias, where if he says it, then everybody else agrees with it. 
Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And by the way, for those of you that uh, are new to the Mark Fine Show, uh, when James talks about the promotional system, in some of the early podcasts uh, on this show, if you go back, um, I, I go through the process and how that was done. Because I, it's funny, you and I have never met, but yet we have come to the same conclusion that sort of the beginning of the end was the promotional system. It, it, it is a, a horrid system that it needs to change. And at some point, um, some administration, uh, the Biden administration is not going to do this but any other administration that, that gets in you know any potential staffer you need to listen to what we're saying right now and um, one of your projects uh, in an administration is to take a good hard look at the FBI look at that promotional system and change it because it's uh, it, it did a lot of damage and in fact um, you use the words irreparable damage and and I agree with that wholeheartedly and again that's a whole episode in and of itself and how that works but you you pointed out something um, uh, very it, it was very astute of you to point this out. And again, it was my, I had a front row seat to how this worked during the Mueller years. One of the things about Mueller that, uh, uh, that he uh, promoted personality wise um, and I, is all of us are flawed human beings. I would say this was a flaw of his. He did. It was good that he didn't suffer fools, as you pointed out. It's good, but he also created an atmosphere where people didn't feel real comfortable in in pushing back on opinions that he gave either. And this is just my opinion, and I'll get your opinion here in a second. But, but when I would go to meetings at headquarters, it was pretty obvious this was not a man to be questioned when you were in a, in a meeting. And it took a very strong backbone to do it, and you you better have your your act together. Um, but there was a, whether it was real or not, but there was a perception at FBI headquarters that if you pushed back against Bob Mueller, you were done. That was your career. And James just talked about the blue flamers and the people that were more concerned about their their career. And th- and there was a whole crop of agents that their focus became promotion as opposed to to doing the right thing necessarily. I know that's a bad thing to say, but I'm just, guys, I'm just, I'm just being honest. That was what, what I noticed that there were people that would move ahead or try to move ahead no matter what. And that was a culture that was created. And I I think it was 2010 time magazine actually did an article. If, if any of you are interested, you can go back and write, read this article about uh, Bob Mueller. And I remember reading it, uh, thinking to myself, um, that was pretty accurate. Um, in, in, in essence, it talked about his management style and how um, he was very directive. And there was a quote, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but the quote went like this, that uh, Bob Mueller uh, you know, sits in his chair at FBI headquarters, and um, if he had his way, he would have a magic um, sort of like lever that he could pull to make everybody do exactly what he wanted to do. I mean, he that's the way it was. It was not to be questioned. I would put out an order, and you follow it. Now, to compare and contrast that, I, I know when I was in the Navy— um, and we would have all officers meeting with meetings with our committing officer. And I, I distinctly remember this. And I was really young at the time, really young junior officer. And I remember having a commanding officer saying, you know, when we were in the room, um, if we had an issue that came up or a decision that needed to be made, the committing officer would throw it out to the room, to all of the junior officers. And he wanted an active debate. He wanted every, in fact, he really encouraged you to disagree with him because he wanted to see all angles to every issue. Then ultimately he would make the decision and that's the way we would go but he not only wanted you to do it but actually um it was it was better for you it was almost better for your career to challenge the committing officer because it showed that you were thinking and which is what he wanted that was not the experience i had when i was at fbi headquarters and i think that um that contributed that mentality contributed a great deal to some of the problems that you saw in later years that was my take james i don't did you do you agree with that from where where you were sitting yeah i uh i actually do i think that's well said and and i think that your assessment of um you know of of the the fbi sixth director um is is accurate and and i kind of got off track and kind of probably jumped the gun a little because you had asked me about the the state of the union and and of course i i morphed into the fbi piece but i wanted to do that as to show that comparison and contrast because that's always what happens like let's look at professional sports you know you have you know, a team has a manager who's considered a plays a player's manager and they're laissez-faire and they let the players get away. And if they're winning, it's great. And if they lose, he gets fired and they bring in this hard, stern, you know, disciplinarian coach or manager right afterwards. And it was weird how in the FBI, you know, you went from a Louis Free to a Robert Mueller and then to a 
to um, um, a James Comey. And it's almost the same thing, I think, on the political end where, you know, you go from, you know, a Donald Trump and then you're you're now with with a Biden. And, and obviously everything that goes on, I think, if you look throughout history, um, you know, is is a pendulum swing. And what we have to do, because the vast majority of us exist between the 10 yard lines so we're we're 80 percent right then you got the left wing extreme fringe from the 10 to the goal line and on the other side of the field you've got the right wing extreme fringe from the 10 to the goal line but the rest of us are in the middle but yet what happens is we always do this course this over course correction it's the same way with policy is we look at what's going on with policing and you know defund the police and now last night no no we're going to fund the police and it, it's the way <laughs> i was stunned when i heard it, that yeah it's the way that things happen but i guess I'll, I'll i'll just i'll sum this up by saying if you're asking me what what my final take was last night um you know i, I think the president is in a bad spot right now a lot of things have happened that he doesn't have control over and there's a lot of things that he does through his decision making and his policy um choices and i think that's why we're at we're at where we are right now and why i think i've seen some polls maybe it was real clear politics that has him at like a 37 percent approval rating and that's not going to be good going into the midterm so yeah i was not i he would have had to hit a you know a grand slam last night and i don't know how he could have done it i don't know if ronald reagan could have done it you know and he's somebody that's probably the best president that we had in my lifetime at least in my opinion but um yeah i thought it was kind of disconcerting last night um to see that a lot of platitudes a lot of bromides a lot of don't believe your lying eyes and you know everything's just great and we're creating jobs and unemployment's going down and gas isn't really that expensive and the supply chain issues are really just greedy greedy people that are at the head of these corporations and you know it's just nothing of substance uh even regarding the pandemic you know they they take off the mask mandate in congress a day before the state of the union address we still had children masked in new york state two-year-old three-year-old five-year-old eight-year-old nine-year-old children masked and you had all these relatively older people because members of congress except for some of the newer generations or especially in the Senate, are older people, and they were all unmasked and hugging each other and shaking hands. And it just, I, I just thought that that was such an awful picture uh, to present when you know we had a president that promised he was gonna he was gonna get rid of the virus, he was gonna shut the virus down, then had to deal with reality, um, and then place politics with the science. So, yeah, I, uh, I, 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 there was nothing last night that made me feel better after the State of the Union address than before when I went into it. Yeah, uh, it, there is so much politics that has come into this, and you talked about politics and the science. And the danger, what I'm saying, and I'm, I'm kind of pulling back and I'm looking at the macro level again, and I'll, I'll even say that, you know, towards the end of my career, in, in the FBI, I started to see more and more politics come into play. Now, let me back up a minute. So I got commissioned, you, you mentioned Ronald Reagan. I was commissioned uh, as a naval officer during the Reagan years, and it sounds like you were too. Was it? Were you commissioned under Reagan? Uh, yes, I was. Uh, I entered West Point in 83, and then I got out of the service in uh, 1991. Okay, so, yeah, so Reagan, Reagan was there, and, and uh, I remember when I went into the uh military and and, the, and what i'm saying here is not a, a, a political statement i'm just i'm just stating what my observations were but when i was in the military um you know a, we took the oath uh we were told as young naval officers you know this we serve the constitution and we serve the people that were elected and we have a civilian head civilian head of the department of defense and the navy and we take orders from there from the president on down and uh, that's the way it is and uh it, your opinion on who is in charge it well it's you have a vote but other than that you you just you do what you what you need to do in the military that no no politics and that's how i went um you know as a naval officer and then later as a police officer and then in the fbi and um it seemed to be that's the way that it was and then there was a point where in my opinion, again, my, my viewpoint, and this is just my observation, it seemed like there, the, the FBI seemed to become a bit politicized. And I could, go th I could probably spend the next 30 minutes giving examples of where 
I, I specifically came in um, into touch with that while in the FBI. But then that ultimately culminated into uh, the Russia investigation. And as we know, that investigation turned up no collusion, no evidence of collusion between Donald Trump and the Russians. Um, and then now we're starting to see leaks from, not leaks, but uh, filings from the Durham report. In fact, we just had one a couple of weeks ago where it looks like there's a whole lot more there going on behind the scenes than people may be aware of. And then the question is, well, wait a minute. If Durham is picking up on some of this information, why is it that Robert Mueller never came up with this information? We spent three years, two impeachments, and nothing is turned up. And now we're starting to find out, hey, look, uh, there was a lot of things going on that shouldn't have happened. I mean, Kleinsmith, one of the attorneys, uh, pled guilty, you know, on and on and on. Um, and so the public sits back. I get asked this, and James, I'm sure you get asked this all the time. Like, how did, how could this happen, and why are people not going into jail? But more importantly, what the hell is the FBI going to do about it? Is the FBI going to do anything about it? I mean, I know that's a that's a very that's there's multiple parts to that question, but maybe if you can touch on some of them. Sure. I think, uh, again, part of it is um, the way that our country is, first of all, super polarized right now. Um, and, and again, we spoke to the way the FBI used to be. When, when I came in in, in, in early 1991, um, we didn't have political conversations. I imagine the, the majority of the, of the agent population back in those days was huge more conservative. I think we've gotten much more diverse in that regard. Um, and that's a good thing. And, and that's what we demand in this country. We want diversity in everything, right? We want diversity in race and gender and sexual identity and just everything possible except for thought. And you look at how the coverage of what you're talking about, the, the Russian investigation and, and, you know, the Durham's investigation and, and Mueller's investigation, which was really Andrew Weissman's investigation. Mueller was the figurehead. And if you, if you, if you watched his testimony, it was clear, much like watching the current president right now. And I, I can say this as a father who is battling dementia and early onset Alzheimer's. Um, it is just, it's awful to see, um, people that were were once so uh, quick-witted and and intellectual keenly intellectual and 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 could you know were cogent and then you 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 watch Mueller's testimony you watch president biden anytime and you just sit there and go wow i mean this is this is this is a tough place to be right now but that's why my point is about the Mueller investigation. Mueller was essentially because of his reputation, which was well-earned, hard-earned. He was a figurehead because people in this country trusted him. But it was people like Andrew Weissman who was, you know, I mean, made no bones about his, his political uh, positions and support um, for, for liberal causes. And I think we've gotten to a place now where, and I said again, diversity and everything except for thought. When 97% of the White House press corps uh, association are, are liberals or donate to liberal causes and to progressives and Democrats, why is that acceptable? When academia, and I'm in academia, I teach at St. John's University in Queens, which is relatively conservative because it's a, it's a Vincentian university, but why is academia um, you know, so, so rife with, with one type of political thinking. Why is the media that way? Why is Hollywood that way? Why are, t why is TV that way? Why is the entertainment industry that way? So when you wonder about this and you wonder about, you're saying to me, well, well, why wasn't any of this put out there is because for, to a certain extent, um, I'm not suggesting that people are purposely ignoring things, um, in the media as far as coverage goes. But I know that that happens and I know it's the way you frame it. You read the New York Times now and it's like on the front page, which used to be straight news. You can tell by the headlines. You can tell by, you know, the nut graph in every story there. You can tell what the writer's take is. And that that's always happened. But it is particularly um, um, gotten that way, gotten bad since um since uh, since 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 Trump was elected, when the media essentially went into this role that instead of just reporting on the news, we have to pick a side. And I think you're seeing it everywhere. And I can give you examples of it in my last few years in the FBI, where 
um, it really quickly because I've been I've been going on too long. But really quickly, I was the acting legal attaché, an SES position in Mexico City um, when my mother unexpectedly passed away. And I came back. The bureau was great. Let me come back from Mexico, went to Dallas where my mother ultimately passed. My father was in his um, mid to late 70s. And had never, you know, since he was a kid, essentially, the two of them had been together and and he was struggling. And the Bureau allowed me to do a, tweet, a quick three month TDY in Atlanta just to help my father get back on his feet and bring some normalcy back uh, before I went back to Mexico. So I got stationed on a wire. So it was a gang wire. And so it which was fine. I got to work regular shifts, you know, six to two, you know, six a.m. to two p.m. I just monitored a wire, took down liner notes and, 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 and did that kind of work. In being around some of the younger agents that had come into the Atlanta office and to hear the way that they talked about J. Edgar Hoover, um, there was a there was a, a, a picture of the of the late former director, um, really the father of the FBI on one of the walls in the in the in the um, um, in a uh, conference room and to hear. Three of these brand new agents, literally been in the Atlanta office, just enough time to get a cup of coffee, maybe a few months, talk about the fact that they were going to have the picture removed because, you know, Hoover had done some bad things and they disagree with Hoover's take on this or Hoover's take on that. J. Edgar Hoover was born in 1895. He's a product of the 19th century and, again, was an imperfect man, as are we all. But we've gotten to a point now in our world where we're judging people um, by social mores of today, 21st century social mores and constructs of the 21st century when they were not the product of those. They didn't grow up under those. They grew up in a different time and we're holding them to a different standard. And that charge is being led by academia and the media. So when you talk about how that infects things like investigations or covers of investigations, Mark, that's how it happens. Yeah, I agree. And another thing that a lot of people don't seem to understand, and I frankly, I think I think some FBI newer FBI agents don't understand. And I saw this in my time while I was teaching at the academy for the public. For those of you that. Uh, you know, everybody has heard of the FBI, obviously, but um, I, I think a lot of people don't quite understand all of the, the different roles and the different hats that the FBI wears. The FBI has criminal, and you know, there's criminal investigations, counterterrorism, which some, you know, counterterrorism cases are often made through criminal cases, but nevertheless, counterterrorism, and then counterintelligence. Now, that's where the real dividing line is. Um, for those, the uninitiated in, in what the FBI does, uh, when it comes to intelligence operations, the overseas operations that people are familiar with, that's what the CIA does. Domestic intelligence operations is done by the FBI. Now, how intelligence cases are run uh, and the standards that are used and the procedures that are used are very different than criminal cases. Now, the to me, the, what, what you saw happen here in the, the Russia investigation is, um, in many ways, counterintelligence standards. It, it was really kind of a, it was a counterintelligence operation that they started incorporating criminal charges with and the problem with that was we're in the intel world you can make um assertions you can you can uh, in the intel world you might say okay well a guy like this would likely do that and then start making leaps of inferences to develop your operation develop sources develop theories all those kinds of things well in a criminal case you don't do that we operate off the standard of probable cause meaning there's a crime that was committed and uh, I'm going to go and collect evidence to show that either this person did commit that crime or they did not commit that crime. But you then have to fill that with evidence that you can't just say, hey, it looks like J James looks like the kind of guy that would do that. Well, okay, not good enough. You, you have to have evidence to support that, that J here, here's why you, you have this evidence and you need probable cause to go out and get an arrest warrant to get James. And it seemed to me, James, that that, that line got blurred here. That we started off with, well, um, if this guy's making a phone call to Russians, then then somebody that would do that obviously must be working with Russians, and they must be doing this, and they must be doing that. And then it took on it, it, its life of its own. For example, you look at Carter Page, where Carter Page actually was working for the United States, 
not against the United States. But the decision was already made that a guy like Carter Page doing what he was doing must be a bad guy and he must be re- reporting on us when the, the truth was the exact opposite of that. And I don't know. It just seemed like those those lines got blurred. I know as a criminal investigator, which is what I did my whole career, you know, some of the things I read about and I hear about, I would have never done those the things that, that I heard about in a case. Uh, do you agree with that? I do, and and when you and when you get rid of the guardrails that are that are put into place for a reason, and you say, well, this is a national emergency, or this has international consequences, or this has never happened before, and that's the way I think that this was handled. And again, it goes back to some of those more callow and inexperienced agents that were in charge of these investigations, mm-hmm. or in Comey's inner circle. And again. These folks were smart. I'm not suggesting that they weren't. These folks, you know, understood and worked counterintelligence cases. You just said, and and I'll admit the same thing. You know, the the vast majority of my experiences were on the criminal side. And obviously, you know, the Title III process is different than what they deal with along the FISA process on the other side. I get all that. But the things that happen and the way that this has just been ignored, the people, you know, you know, Viva La Resistance, you know, Kevin Kleinsmith, who's the attorney who was working for the bureau out of DOJ, who lied on an email about, you know, Carter Page's connection as a as a as a source to, to the to the CIA, to the agency. And and the fact that, you know, got a smack on the wrist for that. The fact that Andy McCabe, and again, I don't wish ill on anyone. I don't, I don't, I don't revel in people getting convicted for crimes or, you know, people, you know, getting sentenced or, or people that make mistakes, not be given a chance to, to, to redeem themselves. But you have the deputy director of the FBI lies four times, three times under oath and is rightly fired. Right. Doesn't matter if if you've got one day left um, or if you if you're, you know, two months on the job, that should have been a righteous dismissal. Oh, and by the way, and let me just jump in here for one second. Um, I I was in the bureau long enough. You were in the bureau long enough. And we all worked under Andy McCabe when he uh, was acting director. Uh, Make no mistake. He would have fired you or I in a heartbeat for doing what he did in a heartbeat. No questions asked. Yeah, there's there is um, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that that is what he uh, he would have done. And uh, Andy was uh, tough with his dealings with 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 underlings to that who made mistakes at FBI headquarters mm-hmm. and at WFO. And so just to see the way that that worked and look, President Trump didn't help. I mean, President Trump tweeting about it, talking about it, um, you know, basically tanking the, the 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 sentiment about it um made it tough for investigators to 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 to, to do their job the president never should have done that i agree that with you there colossal yeah. error but the bottom line is andy did something that he that he should have been referred criminally to doj um for prosecution and they elected not to do that and they elected to award him back all of his pay and benefits and back pay and it just it just makes it seem like the system is skewed one way now. And that one way is toward anybody that, you know, should be paying the price for what happened um, in the Russian collusion case. There are no consequences. And again, I'm not reveling in it. I'm not looking to, for Andy to be hurt by, you know, um, by, by this sanction or that sanction. But I'm just I'm asking the same question you did. Would people underneath them have been treated the same way? Would you or I have been treated that same way if we were guilty of uh, the things he's been accused and, and, and essentially um, convicted on? I mean, it was proven that he had done this. Why is he being treated differently? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And the answer to that is no. I, I, let me tell you something. I worked, um, so I was the EAP coordinator, the, the Employee Assistance Program coordinator at the Academy, and I was a peer for a long time. Uh, and so I oftentimes when employees would have issues that would come up uh, and, and whatever, sometimes their issues would uh, lead to them have being terminated or being concerned, uh, considered for termination. And I saw heartbreaking cases of things that much of much less consequence than this. 
and they were fired in a heartbeat. And and nobody shed tears over it. Nobody felt sorry. And but it was heartbreaking to me to see. And you know, but as a nation, and I and I want to. Um, for, for those that may not, you know, I know that people are forgetting about the things that went on and not absorbing the consequence of what was going on. But think think very, very hard about what happened here with uh, just Carter, Carter Page. We're just talking about one guy. There, there are other uh, people that we can talk about. But Carter Page, what happened was this guy was a uh, Naval Academy grad, Naval, uh, Naval Academy officer, uh, became a businessman, and he's going over and he's doing speeches in Russia. I think that's what put him on the, the radar for the, this crew, McCabe and everybody else that was a part of this investigation. And uh, But he was a very low-level volunteer in the Trump administration. And so they connect this, and they start uh, looking at him and looking at him as being a, a potential source. And, and I'm just going through the, the cliff note version of the case here. But in essence, he was being accused of being a spy for Russia when in fact he was, uh, he was working for us, specifically the CIA. And at some point, Kleinsmith, the FBI attorney, writes over to the CIA asking, is he, he claims to be a source for you guys. Is that true? And the answer was, yes, he is a source for us. And Kleinsmith intentionally, not accidentally, but intentionally changed it to was, he was not a source for us. Folks, that is a big deal. Because what that meant was, the, uh, the, the, uh, FISA, you know, he had physical surveillance and, and electronic surveillance on him for a number of years. Now, imagine if this was you, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, if that was you and you knew that uh, that they you had been monitored for several years based on information that the FBI knew was false, that's a big deal. By the way, uh, for those of you that are listening to the podcast, one of the things about an FBI agent is it's my obligation that if I com- if I'm investigating you and I have information that leads to me getting a search warrant or uh, doing a Title Three or a FISA on you, and then later I have information that proves that you were not involved in what I initially alleged, it is my obligation to report that to immediately go to the court and report that, right? Yeah, that's the, and, that, uh, and they did not do that. They absolutely did not. That's just unconscionable. That is, that is, people need to go to jail for this. Now, I don't know what is going to happen with uh, the Durham investigation. It looks like there's a lot more there, but my worry is that he's going to come out with the investigation. There may be some indictments, but there's going to have to be some political will to follow through with this. I, I don't have confidence that this administration is going to do that. Maybe uh, if the House and Senate change hands here in the midterm elections coming up in November, and then, well, we've got three more years uh, uh, before we, we get into administration. In. But what are your hopes that this will ever be dealt with? And what do you think should be done with all of this? I, I don't think that anything more is going to come of this. I think if it was going to happen, it would have already happened by now. And I think that the American public um, is probably uh, understandably so exhausted by it and just looking to move on. And the compliant media is going to assist in making that happen. They're not going to report things with the same fervor. Um, if it's something that would exonerate Trump or something that would prove that, you know, that that members of the FBI or political uh, political groups were unduly influenced an investigation or feeding an investigation, um, we obviously having ulterior motives and, and, and partisan ulterior motives. Um, the fact that it's not a bigger story is just that the nation is divided. And the, the mainstream media is, you know, gives us what, you know, 80 percent, 90 percent of of, of the, the, the news that we consume. And they'll determine whether or not it remains a story or not. Or they'll do it on a Friday and and they'll do a news dump and boom, move on from it and, and hit it and quit it and leave it alone and move on to something else. I mean, that's just what I think is going to happen. And I think, to be honest with you, because it has been so we're so far removed. I mean, President Biden's been in office now for for a year and uh, the former president is gone. I just think the appetite for, you know, people to still want to get to the bottom of this. I think some people do. I just don't know if enough of a large enough swath of the American populace is still interested in following this thing through to the end. Yeah, I 
There's a, that's a very, very good point. I, I hope that there is an interest in it because it needs to change because I don't know, and, and just one final question here before we wrap up, uh, because it leads into what about the FBI? Has it changed? And um, if not, what does it need to do to get the confidence of the American people back? Yeah, that's a, that is a uh, that is a great question. Um, look, I have um, I've been critical of of some recent things that have happened in the FBI. I think you and I um, initially, uh, you know, came into communication with each other because I wrote a piece for the New York Post about how I thought some of the decision making in some recent cases, whether it's the the fervent pursuit of making everything a domestic terror crime and making everything white supremacy, um, that some people I believe have in the decision making roles. Because uh, they want to even things out instead of following the evidence wherever it takes you bereft of fear or favor. Um, and I think that um, there, there there are some things like how we carefully choose words when describing certain things. We can't call things what they were. And this all goes to what we were talking about at the top of this episode. Um, but I also think that Christopher Ray. Um, has done a commendable job. And, and you and I both know that, you know, we're not here to to criticize the vast majority of the of the rank and file of the bureau. They're the ones out there keeping us safe right now. They're the ones out there doing truly doing God's work and doing due diligence and 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 keeping us all safe. I think that the director Ray has done a good job in some areas. And obviously there's some other areas where I wish we would would do something a little bit differently, but I think he was what was necessary and needed after the Comey era. You needed a guy that didn't want the spotlight, a guy who was more behind the scenes, um, and and had that you know that that uh, shunning the limelight kind of uh, mien about him, and 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 that's who Director Ray is. So I think in that regard. It's good. I think the FBI did release a number of priorities that they were going to um, address and change after obviously the, the, you know, the all the IG reports came out. And I have to believe that they're doing that. And uh, hopefully if they do um, it, we can it's going to be a slow process. Losing your reputation or ruining it can happen in an instance. Rebuilding trust in an institution can take decades. And I and I. I'm, I'm not thinking that we're going to turn this battleship around on a dime and change the public's perception um, next week, but I think it'll be sooner as opposed to later. Yeah. Do, do you think that prosecutions for the what were essentially well, they were crimes during this whole Russia investigation? Do you think that that would be a step in the right direction? Um, I, I mean, if it's you know, if those are the rules, then my. My feeling would be, yeah, that's that's what you and I spent career in the FBI doing. Um, you know, these are the rules. Uh, we are a country that abides by the rule of law. If you break those laws, you're subject to the consequences. But I don't know. I don't know if there is a political will, even though I hate to to use that word again and talking about our agency. But I don't know if there's political will there to see that that's done. And I think that um, there will be decisions that we made predicated on, hey, let's just move on. I don't know that for certain. I'm just surmising that. Yeah. Well, those are all great observations. And, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I'm, I'm glad that we got to hook up. I, I, this was a great conversation. And I know the audience is going to get a lot out of it. Well, I appreciate you having me and you ask the right questions. And I do uh, a number of these. And uh, it's always good to be on with an informed host. And it's a it's an extra special uh, uh, uh <laughs> When I get somebody that's uh, that comes from the same background that I do, it always uh, it always makes it more fun. And <laughs> it is, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, we didn't use too many acronyms that are military or FBI related, so uh, the folks listening will get a chance to understand what we're talking about. No, and I have a feeling if you ever uh, want to come back on the program, you're always welcome on the program because I think we have an endless <laughs> supply of things to discuss, and particularly as the as the world uh, unfolds, because we have no idea what's happening from one minute to the next right now. Agreed. All right. Well, thank you so much, James. Folks, that's James Gagliano. By the way, uh, if you want to just give our listeners, if they want to reach out to you, or how can they find you and look at this, some of the stuff? Because you know, James is all over the internet, uh, and uh, you know, it, it, we didn't even cover that, James. You know, let our listeners know about some of the the television work that you do and the writing that you do. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, I write for a number of different uh, outlets, but I mean, mostly when asked, um, it's it's with the New York Post and I've done some for 
for Fox News. Um, I, I wrote for CNN Opinion for, for about four years. And I'm in some different places, too. If something happens, obviously, you know, the Ukraine situation is kind of sucking all the oxygen out of the room, and, and justifiably so because of what's going on there. But when their law enforcement matters, um, you, you'll see my voice out there. And if people want to follow me, they can do it on Twitter. It's at uh, I'm at James A for my middle initial Galliano G A G L I A N O. That's my handle. So James A Galliano G A G L I A N O. And uh, you can certainly reach out to me there. My DMs are open. If somebody needs something or wants to connect on an issue, I'm I'm happy to do so. Oh, outstanding. So reach out and folk, I, again, thanks for coming back on the show. All of you, you check me out. Uh, once again, this is the Mark Fine's Mark Fine Show. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Parlor, And hey, even Rumble. So with that, folks, you know, I really appreciate you coming out, listening to the program. Hope you learned something today. And I, you know, as who knows what's going to be happening over here over the next few weeks. But we're going to be uh, keeping you informed and giving you our thoughts and opinions. You guys take care of yourselves, and we will see you soon. 